Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. And now, if you had a pastor who only quoted, well... I mean, she's so out of date now, but like he'd quote Madonna in sermons. And that would just be like, what in the world are you doing? But what I like about it is Tim Tim kept people on their toes because essentially he would quote The Village Voice, a very, very liberal publication or The Nation. Mm-hmm. And then he turned around and he talked about penal substitutionary atonement. And so people could not peg the church as yep. conservative or as, as fundamentalist or as liberal. And that's exactly what he was trying to do, yep. was to unrest them, um, or just kind of unsettle them, I should say, to be able to think, what is this kind of place? This is not what I expected. That's exactly what he was going for. Mm. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Lagos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're doing a book club episode with Colin Hansen. We're going to introduce Colin here in a moment and who he is. But uh, the reason why we're doing book club today is he wrote a uh, book on Timothy Keller. And so here's for the YouTube audience, you can see the cover of the book. And um, it's called Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation by Colin Hansen, obviously. And so in our show notes, uh, there's going to be a link to Zondervan. Click that link, get this book. There's also going to be in our show notes some other information, of course, because this conversation is about Tim Keller. And we're going to have Tim Keller, timothykeller.com is a link on our show notes. So you can check out his... uh, webpage and then um also just maybe some other books and works that both have touched myself and peter they're from timothy keller um here for myself since i'm talking right now i'll just bring it up there's the reason for god uh, we'll put that in our show notes so you guys can check it out i'm also in the middle of listening to the audio version the audible version of uh the meaning of marriage um, it was recommended to to us as as a helpful resource, 
And then there's some other Tim Keller books that I've personally read, but I'll let also um, Peter include his if, if he wants to bring them up during the show or just put them in the show notes. But there's also some other information uh, in our show notes as well. You can find more resources about Colin Hansen, where to find him, and then also how to find a uh, reformed confessional church near your area. So you click this link and you type in your zip code and the closest reformed or confessional churches come up near you. And then just basic reminders of how to get a hold of Peter and myself with any questions and comments. Um, they, uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. We're, uh, email address is guiltgracepod at gmail.com. And then you can find these conversations via video on YouTube as well. And then obviously some information about our Bridge Builder sponsors, especially Logos Bible Software, our uh, main sponsor. So let's jump in. Let's uh, have... Mr. Peter Bell, introduce Colin Hansen today. Yep, we have uh, Colin Hansen, serves as Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition, also hosts another podcast, Gospel Bound mm-hmm. Podcast, which we'll talk about too, and I, I highly recommend that as well. He's written and edited many books, earned his MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and an undergrad degree in journalism history from Northwestern. Also an adjunct professor of apologetics and co-chair the advisory board at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. It is a pleasure having you on our show, Mr. Colin Hansen. Hey, thanks, guys. It's glad to be back, right? That's right. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that's I was, some sometime two summers ago, which is crazy. In 2021, we had you and Dr. Lehman on for uh, the uh, Rediscover the, Church. Yeah, re, yeah, yeah, Rediscover Church. Yep. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's a. It's a pleasure talking to you again, and you decided to come back on our show for some <laughs> for some reason. You wanted to meet me because I wasn't <laughs> able to right, do that right, one. Yeah, right. yeah Nick was conveniently absent last time and called, like, you know what? We have to do this again. And like, okay, if you insist, we'll get the we'll full experience. The full yeah. exactly. Yep. So if, the, if people haven't <clears throat> knew or haven't listened to uh, um, anything you've done, or, or maybe not don't know who you are, let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do. Yeah, so most of my days are occupied with the Gospel Coalition. We're a site, uh, an international site, and we serve church leaders, whether that be parents all the way to, to pastors, anybody who's trying to help the next generation grow in their their knowledge and their love of God and to share that love with, uh, with others. So that's how I spend most of my time. Uh, before that, you mentioned, I mean, that, I'm doing that now. This is going on my 13th year. Dang. And uh, so, I mean, I, in that role, I get to do a lot of things, whether it's our books or our podcasts, as you mentioned, Gospel Bound, in there to our conferences. Uh, recently uh, launched our TGC 23 event in September, mm-hmm. which was really yep. exciting with um, about 80 or so speakers, Indianapolis end of September. And so I work on that and and uh, do a lot of, just a lot of speaking and writing in general. So yeah, before that I was, um, I mean, of course, heavily involved in our church. My wife is um, works in women's ministry, got mm-hmm. three kids ranging from one to eight. And um, yeah, so we have we have a nice. Um, we're grateful for a full a full life. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you go to Iron City. Is that where Isaac Adams? Is that where he preaches? Yeah. So Isaac mm-hmm. Adams is our our new pastor, and yep. that's uh, who my wife works for. And um, it's just a uh, Isaac's a a good friend going back over the years, and really grateful for him at our church, and just really grateful for him to be in Birmingham. 
It's, yeah, uh, totally. It's a wonderful, wonderful situation. Yeah, we had him on mm-hmm. almost exactly a year ago to talk about his talking about race book. So it's yeah, it's we love we loved having him on. It's, it's, he seems like a, a great guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really is very, very insightful, excellent preacher, great leader, and and just um, yeah, we're we're like I said, glad for him to be in Birmingham. Yeah, awesome. So we'll we'll talk about talk about this book and i know people are saying well you keep on saying timothy keller and i don't see him on here it's because it's the, the title of the book and if he ever listens he's like oh man just like my, my mom's calling for me timothy keller um but this is this is such a it's such a great book for so many reasons but it's all of it and i think others probably think this too it's it might be odd in that i think biographies people generally assume they're they're written after the death of whoever it's written mm-hmm. by but this is obviously not written after the death of of tim keller but this is also not a traditional biography, nor a festriff, which is people kind of writing stuff that he was interested in, but a look on the influences of Tim Keller. So how did this kind of unique book come to be? And maybe also, too, why it's written now versus maybe a few years after this, um, when when he, uh, if, not if, yeah. but when he dies. Yeah. Well, I think the, the very nature of the book helped the first question answers the second question. So... Uh, the idea came through the publisher uh, in 2020 at a time of, of obviously global disruption yeah. for us with the pandemic. And uh, I think a lot of people were rethinking things and wondering about things and mm-hmm. wondering about the future. And well, during that period, very shortly into that, uh, Tim Keller learned that he had pancreatic cancer. That's right. Yep. And so, you know, with pancreatic cancer to this point, it's not curable as mm-hmm. far as, as we understand it and so and sometimes that diagnosis can go really quickly and so uh tim is not the kind of person who he just doesn't talk a lot about himself no uh and you don't necessarily get a lot of biographical details in his preaching or in mm-hmm. his books you'll get some anecdotes here and there like his new book forgive it really mm-hmm. does not it was noteworthy when i was interviewing him about that book that he doesn't talk much about his own experiences there. And so, um, but one thing that Tim does that's really different from anybody else you'll run into is he talks a ton about what he's learning Mm -hmm. and where he's learning it and who he's learning it from. And so really the way to understand Tim is by learning, is by who he's reading and who he's been talking about and whose classes he took. And Mm -hmm. So he has a unique ability to be able to synthesize that information. Well, if that's the way to understand Tim Keller, that's one of his unique gifts to the church, and we know that he has pancreatic cancer, then the question comes, well, we want to talk to him about this. We want to hear, what were you thinking? What what were you trying to do here? What was your aim with this? So, uh, you know, all biographies will start with, how somebody was formed, but then they spend most of their time on what somebody did and what the effects were. And so what's different about this one is you get the, the it traces through his whole life to yeah. date, but exclusively through those influences. And I'm not sure you could really write the same kind of book no. about any other figure. No. Uh, and so that's why the analogy in the book that I borrowed from Tim of the rings on a tree. That's right. It's so significant because he just kept growing, has just kept growing even to this to this day. Everything he he sees and does, it's an opportunity 
to seek a deeper uh, experience of God and with God and and with his wife Kathy and so um, it just you can write a narrative about his continued intellectual and spiritual growth throughout a lifetime over over seventy years. So yeah, that's kind of why we took that that approach and and why this biography is or or why it's just not like what you'd expect from a traditional biography, but will include many of the elements that you would totally. appreciate <clears throat> in a biography. Yeah, before Nick starts, it was <clears throat> I was I looked through um I think he's teaching a course at RT he just just taught mm-hmm. a course and he's teaching a course about the teacher course at RTS in New York about kind of cultural influences in Christianity. It was the first time I've seen the biography or the bibliography of the syllabus twice as long as the syllabus itself <laughs> and broken down. I was like, oh, this is this is a different syllabus that I think people are used to. Where you want people to kind of dig deep into some of these sources. Like, hey, if you'd like to talk about anything, here's six pages full of everything that I've read on this subject. <laughs> which well, really more like a curated list of what he's read on it. It really was, yeah. Not everything. I mean, Tim is a an endlessly curious person. Oh, yeah. He... He not only has the ability to read more than the rest of us, he has the ability to retain it. And not only does he have the ability to retain more than the rest of us do, (laughs) then he has the ability to turn around, add his own unique take on it, and then teach it to us. That is Mm -hmm. a, it's not kind of what you'd expect. It's not a typical gift. It's not a common gift, but it is a particular one for Mm -hmm. for him. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, and it when I started reading your book, it, it, it's not completely surprising too, because uh, even from a young age, he's it's pretty clear he was gifted intellectually. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could read right. almost independently by age three. I yeah, think that's said. right. I, I mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty. I have a three-year-old right now, so I'm like, oh man, I gotta pick it up. I gotta pick it up. But but what's interesting there is that it wasn't his parents. Right. That's what I noticed in there. It was something that it wasn't like his parents sat him down yeah, he and just picked it up. Yeah, yeah, and in many ways, his his parents are are were fascinating fascinating people. But mm-hmm. it's like a lot of situations. You couldn't look at his parents and say, "Oh, yeah, yeah. obviously you're going to get Tim Keller." No, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah. follow. So there yeah, was like a certain Tim Keller level. Came from you guys are you sure? Yeah, I mean, at some level, yeah. there was a uniqueness there, and that his sister was one of the most helpful sources ah. that I had in the book, and. And that was pretty clear uh, from the from the beginning of of kind of the way he he was he was different not only from his parents but from most other people in his in his community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so uh, this one of this just kind of set up this conversation since we're still pretty much in the beginning of this chat. And for a broad audience, if somebody clicked on this and they're like, "Who who are you guys talking about?" Who, so who is Tim Keller? What is he known for? What is he doing now? Yes, he's still alive as we're recording. So um, if you can just kind of lay some basic f- yeah. f- uh, groundwork of introducing mm-hmm. him. Yes, Tim Keller was born in September of 1950, and he lives in New York with his wife, Kathy. He's got three sons, all in New York as well, and various grandchildren. Uh, what he's most famous for is as the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Started that in 1989. Uh, the rare mega church in Manhattan itself. Mm-hmm. There are a number of large churches throughout New York City, but not not especially in Manhattan. That was especially odd at the time to be an evangelical Protestant church. 
Um, and one of the marks that you can discern of Tim's influence is precisely because of the growth of other evangelical churches throughout New York and then in global cities around the world. That's really his, uh, his top legacy. He's also the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, so that's when I started to work with him in 2010 and, and began collaborating with him on books in 2007. Uh, most people would know him, though, uh, if they're listening here, they would have encountered him the same way you guys have already described, through his books. So uh, he's had at least two New York Times bestsellers, mm-hmm. The Prodigal God, as well as The Reason for God, mm-hmm. both of them published in 2008 when he was yep. already 58 years old, um, or 57, turning 58, there you go, mm-hmm. reason for God. But he's published, I mean, a dozen other books, ranging all the way from church ministry and and, and culture with the Center Church, all the way to high-level apologetic engagement with the contemporary social criticism, the make, making sense of God, all the way to books on suffering and forgiveness and uh, on and on and on, Meaning of Marriage, you guys mentioned, mm-hmm. one of his most popular books of all time. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, his sermon <laughs> podcast is mm-hmm. routinely one of the most popular in the world. Uh, so many people may know him, not only from, say, going back to his the sermon he preached after 9-11. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But then also some other, I mean, many other standout sermons, many of which have become parts of his books, like The Prodigal God, uh, but also one of my personal fam- uh, personal favorites, The Girl Nobody Wanted, about Rachel and, and Leah oh, yeah. in Genesis, yep. and uh, so one of them that I cover in there. So that's a lot, but that um, gives <laughs> you a little bit of sense. He's a Presbyterian, I mean, I mentioned mm-hmm. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he's, he's one of the leading pastors in the PCA, which is... Not that old of a denomination, only about uh, fifty odd, fifty odd years old. Yep. But um, fifty years, of, uh, yeah, fifty years old as of today, seventy three to two thousand twenty three. Oh. oh wow! Okay, I had no idea. Look at yep. that. Um, so yeah, there you go. And so, um, and not only that, PCA has its origins in the South. So him being in New York helps to show how he's helped the denomination reach different parts of the country. So there's your basic overview. Huh. Fantastic. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. And then obviously this conversation is going to go deeper. So we're not just stopping there, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, oh, thanks hey, for... There we go. Oh, okay. I got caught up. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was cool too. Just uh, random side notes. His his mom's his mom was from families from Italy. I think his dad's mm-hmm. family's from Germany. That's is right. that right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. Good little background there. And mm-hmm. then, um, so we're going to talk about that. I don't randomly just bring that up, but it kind of brings up his his young life growing up uh, particularly his mother um but you know so tim grew up in a particularly transitional period in american life um he attended college uh during this time period of you know the 60s early 70s how did that shape keller especially during his time at bucknell so a lot of people might not know that college but you can maybe bring that up too yeah small liberal arts school there in uh, in pennsylvania um in lewisburg yeah so i think of any time in american history i suppose you could accept the revolution or the civil war yeah, but of course 1968 to 1972 to be in college <laughs> yeah. you know i went back and i was and i was i when i was writing the chapters on bucknell i had a soundtrack in my mind, it, it, I was actually just pulled up Spotify, like the songs of 1968, uh, yeah. yep. and it was helpful to kind of put me in the 
in the frame of mind. And so the number one song when Tim was starting college was Hey Jude from the Beatles. Oh, so yeah. one of the most famous songs of, of all times. So that just puts you in a little bit of that perspective. So he's not a Christian when he goes yep. to Bucknell. He's got a fairly adversarial relationship with his very devout um, mother. And his dad's pretty passive about about a lot of things in the family and religion. And so he goes, but immediately, or pretty early on, is in part of the community at, at InterVarsity and Christian Fellowship. And to set the stage, that is, it's the kind of the early stages of what would become known as the Jesus Movement. Mm -hmm. And so this, at a time of the radical counterculture of the hippies and Vietnam protests, mm -hmm. this huge spiritual awakening spreads throughout the throughout the country. Yeah, it was big in SoCal with Chuck Smith at Calvary. Yeah, absolutely, Calvary Chapel. I mean, we could talk the whole charismatic movement. Yep. If your church uses guitars today, it's almost mm -hmm. certainly because of the Jesus movement, those <laughs> yeah. kinds of things. And so um, that's it, you know, right there in the middle is when he becomes a Christian, uh, right there in early 1970. And um, and from there, almost immediately, you're jumping into controversies over the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. controversies over uh, the Kent State shootings mm -hmm. by the National Guard, protests uh, over that. And so he's gone from, essentially, think about this, he's kind of coming in with a lot of questions about race and integration because um, many members of his family and his church would have been staunchly anti uh, Martin Luther King Jr., which, by yep. the way, I also put in there that in the months leading up to him starting college, MLK, of course, is assassinated that mm -hmm. April. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, is also assassinated during that time. Right before they start, right around that, yeah, right before they start the Democratic National Convention, mm -hmm. is total chaos in Chicago. So just a very tumultuous yeah, period. Transitions. So, yeah, yeah. So from race, and they jump from race into um, into intellectual doubts. It's the height of existentialism, the death yeah. of God movements. Mm -hmm. So he's getting a lot of that and Freud and things like that in the religion classes. And then from there, you're jumping straight into war and questions about Christian activism. So all of that would have a huge shape on on his whole life. I mean, his seminary years were hardly less dramatic because you had the rise of evangelical feminism during mm -hmm. that time and Gordon Conwell was a very eclectic seminary in terms of its different influences so yeah those years from 68 in his education all the way to 75 were um, profoundly shaping for his entire life including Kathy including his wife Kathy as well where they um, they got married during their seminary years yeah so you, you've already brought this up, and you, you bring this up throughout the book, even though um, he was introduced to this in the early or the late '60s. It still, it still influences him to to this very day. Um, is his approach to ministry and preaching evangelism is his time with uh, InterVarsity? Mm -hmm. So what was what's so significant about this time with InterVarsity <clears throat> that continues to shake? Because it's not, it's not like it's it was the beginning of his life, and he kind of forgets it or leaves it to the side, moves on with his life, and, and has other influence. Though he does. He's building on top of this this influence of Theodore Varsity. So what, what was what was so shaping about this? And there's I know there's some conferences and, and some books that he's reading at this yeah. time too. But maybe this particularly, how did this shape him um, so so tremendously? Yeah. Well, I think it's I guess one of the things I love so much about history, about reading it, and about writing it, is that 
you get to see how things changed and why. And so in part because of people like Tim Keller, we take for granted that if you're a young person who's really interested in intellectual questions about the faith, that there's going to be endless resources available to you, not only through the internet, but through books by people like Tim Keller. That was not the case for American evangelicals for the most part in the mid-20th century. Um, And so one of the primary places that we're engaging with cutting-edge scholarship from an apologetic and evangelistic standpoint was the ministry InterVarsity, which got its origins in the United States, especially in the post-war period, and I write extensively about that. And so he was introduced very early on in his faith, and even before he became a Christian, to a faith that combined a, a warm, pious heart, also with strong intellectual engagement, and then also with a, a fervor for seeing other people come to Christ, a fervor for evangelism. That's what was that was characteristic of InterVarsity at the time, which was, and most of the authors and leaders associated with InterVarsity were from British evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And so even when Tim later would start the Gospel Coalition, what he was really thinking about was the influence of InterVarsity uh, from that from that mid um, mid level period, or mid mid century period, and then from these books that he was reading from F. F. Bruce, from C. S. Lewis, from J. I. Packer, from uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, mm-hmm. John Stott. I mean, those mm-hmm. are the names right there. Mm-hmm. And um, and John Stott, who spoke at a number of major university events, including their their Urbana conference yep. every three yep. years for missions. And we're talking tens of thousands of students would go to this conference. Uh, John Stott, I think, is the closest historical parallel to yep. Tim. I think they have the most similar temperament and, and outlook on things. And so University had that kind of shaping effect, not to mention the fact that the first woman staffer of University, Barbara Boyd, um, at um, their summer camp out in Colorado, Bear Trap, uh, taught him the inductive Bible study method that they became so famous for in part because of her Bible and Life conferences, she taught that to him, and that became the foundational way through close observation of the text that he would preach and teach for the rest of his life. So you could just go on and on and on and on and on about InterVarsity, but it had a, a huge effect on on his life, no doubt. Yeah, and it's it's maybe unique's not maybe the right word, but it, I've heard you talk about in other places and just reading through this as well. It's not like he leaves some influences and kind of right. adds some others and kind of replaces them, but it's like he builds on top of them and doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't really leave anything before that. Too. So what's yeah. is there something unique about that? Like yeah. why why is he just building on top of this stuff and not really like changing things? I mean, he does change things up a little bit, but not like leaves things and bring something else up. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's an interesting character in that he really didn't change his views on anything after no. seminary. <laughs> no. So, uh, so seminary was a time of, of, of extraordinary intellectual ferment and, um, and, and growth and changed his mind, became a Presbyterian, became yep. reformed, um, developed his views during that time about, about a church, about uh, fusing together some of the parachurch elements of community with the, yep. Yep. With the institutional church, so uh, especially through his mentor Ed Clowney. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, I mean, he sent the. So he basically just he he settles on those views at that time. His views on 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 men's and women's roles in the family and mm-hmm. in the in the in the church that doesn't change either. I'm not saying that it that I mean 
that's not the only way that it can be. You can yeah. change your views <laughs> on things. But what I appreciate about Tim is that especially in the internet age and especially the Twitter age, theology seems to be fad ish it's always yeah. been faddish to a certain extent the next there's, big thing is what people yeah, are talking about there's just there's a lot of hype and so a figure like a jonathan edwards or a herman bavink might get really hyped up and everybody's mm -hmm. like yeah i want to be associated with them but then somebody over here says no i don't like them and everybody's like yeah i don't like them either and, and so <laughs> yeah. it just becomes it kind becomes of like in the crowd yeah it looks yeah. like becomes like fashion yeah. And so I, I like the rings on a tree analogy, especially because it keeps the gospel of Jesus Christ at the core. Yep. And the contrast I give is that I don't think is helpful is lily pad theology, huh. where you just sort of hop and hop and mm -hmm. hop, and you just kind of keep going to some new, new fad in there. Plus, they don't integrate with each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. The thing about Tim is that they, they, they integrate. They're all part of the same tree trunk in there yeah. so i just think it's a good learning model for the rest of us which is not no one would ever accuse tim of stopping learning when he was 25 years old that's <laughs> no. not something you ever criticize him for <laughs> oh yeah but but having a settled core of convictions is is very beneficial in ministry when mm -hmm. when the circumstances change so in, in some sense he he becomes a more mature minister in new york city compared to hopewell virginia but he's the same person with the same mm. theological beliefs. Yeah, totally. Mm. His time at Bucknell was so significant because he, as he entered Bucknell, he really um, kind of changed by the time he left in the fact that, you know, he, he did have some doubts and um, while he was there, but then he came to Christ and gave his life to Christ while he was there. And inner varsity was significant with uh, that. And, is uh, becoming more involved in that, and then some friendships there through InterVarsity, uh, you know, helped him see the gospel. And then um, once he gave his love to Christ, he was really on fire for it. Um, mm -hmm. So you guys will read about that in his in uh, Colin's book. Um, but s speaking about influences during this time at Bucknell with InterVarsity, um, he had a strong influence, uh, one of his biggest influences, Edmund Clowney, former president, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. So what's particularly influential about Clowney's work and that story of their first time getting Clowney to come over to Bucknell and speak? Um, and it, it really shaped Keller's understanding of a gospel-centered preaching. Yeah. So Clowney is one of the figures that I hope the book will help more people to be able to get to know. Same here, uh, yeah, totally. Just a, a tremendously influential and interesting and significant figure in evangelical history. So he helped Tim in a number of different ways. One, he's Tim's only only ever personal mentor. So mm -hmm. so Tim is the only person. This doesn't even include Kathy, um, but he's the only person that would have known Tim at some level all the way from that conversion. Mm -hmm all the way through the New York City years, at least into an after 2000, 2001 range in there. So, I mean, Kathy's right in there at the same time, but um, so Clowney's one of the only figures that transcends all those different periods of time. And the, the he, he contributed several different decisive changes to Tim's ministry. One of them was 
just his ability to engage in cultural apologetics and mm-hmm. in um, and in traditional apologetics. I mean, being able to defend the faith. So he came in. He'd actually studied existentialism, Kierkegaard, in his mm-hmm. um, graduate education. Clowney did, and so they brought him in to talk about Albert Camus, and who was a huge deal at mm-hmm. the time in there. So he's able to do an evangelistic presentation, engaging with the cutting edge. Uh, philosophies and secular and anti-Christian philosophies of the of the age, but I think maybe the bigger difference that he made was that he turned around and led an intervarsity retreat the next um, that then that weekend. He talks about the church. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time, Tim doesn't have any interest in the church because no. remember he grew up in the church, mm-hmm. but not with a saving faith. No. Uh, so, so he like a lot of people. A lot of evangelicals associated the spiritual dynamism with the parachurch, not with the church. Mm-hmm. So Clowney helps to put him on that trajectory um, toward minister, pastoral ministry in the church, and then and just in a value in the church. On top of that, uh, Clowney is also the person who recommends Gordon Conwell because he knows Tim is not reformed; otherwise, he would have said go to Westminster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he said go to Gordon Conwell in there, and then after that, Clowney. Clowney was Presbyterian, but also evangelical. Yeah. And that has become characteristic of Tim's ministry as well. He was reformed, but also evangelical. He He's willing, and Clowney was at those same Urbana meetings with Stott earlier. So, and then Clowney is also a, a connection point of Westminster's legacy connecting back to Princeton and then connecting back to the neo-Calvinist tradition mm-hmm. and specifically its work on Christ-centered preaching from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so the way Clowney would handle the Old Testament texts in his preaching and teaching and help to find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ was something that blew Tim's mind. It blows my mind. It still helps so many people today. Mm-hmm. And so what we think about with Tim with sermons she was Old Testament sermons, things like the girl nobody wanted from Genesis. Um, that was really stuff that he learned first from Clowney. Clowney not only came to Bucknell when Tim was an undergraduate, Clowney also gave a series of lectures in the spring semester of Tim yep. and Kathy's first year at Gordon-Conwell. And uh, so I, I quote extensively in the book from those messages because it's pretty— and, and um, Gordon-Conwell actually digitized them uh, for yep. me— um, I'm not sure anybody had listened to those things since 1973. I don't think Tim mm. and Kathy had since they were 23. And um, it's just remarkable to go back through and listen to those five, I think it was five lectures, and hear, oh, so that's like 80% of what Tim taught <laughs> was <laughs> was in those uh, messages yeah. from Ed Clowney. It was a lot of fun. Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor, at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. 
There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Have you been thinking about going to seminary for a while and wondered, what would a day in the life of a seminarian look like? Westminster Seminary California is hosting their spring seminary for a day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. This is an all-day, community-wide event designed to give you a taste of seminary life, the rigor of Westminster academics, the friendships outside the classroom, living together in the Westminster Village, eating with faculty and staff, and more. Westminster has a special treat for those who attend. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, Vice Chairman of Ligonier Ministries and Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, will be delivering his Robert G. Dendolk Lectures of Preaching at Chapel. You're not going to want to miss this. At Westminster, we think that an in-person visit is the best way to experience our community, classes, and campus. So to that end, they're offering a $400 travel grant to prospective students to help ease the burden of their travel expenses to visit sunny San Diego. Sign up today to attend Westminster Seminary California's Spring Seminary for a Day on Friday, March 17th, 2023. Visit www.wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474 or click on our show notes for direct link to sign up. Westminster Seminary California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are you a student who's looking to go deeper into classical Protestantism and our theological heritage? What about a pastor who wants some sharpening of his theological, exegetical, and historical toolboxes? Are you a layperson who's looking for theological wisdom? Maybe you're an educator looking to lay a classical foundation in theology. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. And key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. They take full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online classes. Davenant's offers an MLIT in classical Protestantism with the standard and pastoral ministry tracks and a brand new PhD program in partnership with Union Theological College and Dominant Hall supervisors. Yet they insist that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation. So to that end, they host regular residentials at the Dominant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain region of South Carolina. Registration for spring 2023 classes running April to June are now open, but registration closes March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Classes include the Reformation in the Modern World, a Biblical Theology of the Sexes, Augustine City of God, and so many more. These classes look incredible. 
Visit www.davenanthall.com to find out more or www.davenantinstitute.org for more information about the whole organization or go to our show notes and click on the link. Yeah, <clears throat> it sounds like too, it's um, as I kind of come into my, my next question uh, and to kind of sum up, it's he's not like trying to do new things in ministry. He's not trying to introduce new innovations or try to kind of reinvent the wheel. And you talk about this a lot in your book. He's, he, he'll like, he'll, he's the first one to say like, this is not new to me. I'm just repackaging what I've read or what I've listened to before. Uh, he's, he's not trying to be new and edgy. Like, I think people think he's new and edgy, but he's just repackaging stuff for this current age that makes most sense for people who are in today's age, post-Christian age or uh, whatever people want to, want to call it. Uh, is there maybe something to where yeah. he's he's uh he's taking the best of what's came what came before him and not trying to add to it he's just repackaging it for people who may yeah. have forgotten this stuff too well and it's just it's just the sheer number peter of of influences some of us might say and including some say yeah i'm influenced by tim keller um well i mean well it'd be a lot for the rest of us to say oh i have like three people that are my go-to folks yeah tim has like 75 it just is <laughs> yeah. it's just very it's yeah. remarkable how broad and how numerous those influences are because it was pretty amazing how many times you'd see him saying something like so and so is the father of my preaching ministry and you're thinking alec mateer is like the father of your preaching ministry i thought that was ed Clowney. i thought that was mm. martin lloyd jones i thought that was on and on and on but he just he learns so much from all of them and i don't think many people would associate tim keller as being a big charles spurgeon fan but no, he yeah. was and read a ton mm -hmm. of his stuff while he was at at hopewell so um yeah it's it's not only it's the number of them it's the way that they seem to all fit together it doesn't sound like a mm. you know like just radio static of confusion <laughs> uh when they all try to get, get synthesized together but the best example or story that I heard about this was from Louise Midwood, Tim and one of Tim and Kathy's closest friends. Mm -hmm. She was a student with them at Gordon Conwell. And she said that they would they'd go to class together and then they'd all go back to Tim's dorm oh, yeah, room right. afterward. Yep. And then Tim would redo the entire lecture. <laughs> yeah. And somehow it would still be faithful but have Tim's own perspective incorporated yep. <laughs> into it. And I use that as a way of organizing the entire book because that, there's no better explanation of Tim mm. than yeah. that. He tells you what they taught, and you're like, oh, wow, I haven't seen that. But then you think, this has got some sort of special Tim Keller spin on it too, <laughs> though it's not <laughs> yeah. just it's not, he's not just regurgitating what somebody else said. And yeah. you mentioned uh, some other influences, obviously C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. all the way to Jonathan Edwards, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. is like two people that would not necessarily get no. along probably with each other in the same room, but the, he really appreciated both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the commonality he found in both of them was their ability to use compelling imagery Yeah. Oh, yeah. as they were engaging with anti-Christian teaching and, and in their teaching in general. And part of that's because Lewis is writing, uh, mere Christianity stands out so much because he's writing for radio. Mm -hmm. So he's having to be so vivid to help it's for the ear, picture yeah. this. Yeah, yep. exactly. And Edwards was profoundly shaped by the new 
currents in preaching that came through the First Great Awakening, especially George Whitfield. Yep. So you see a pretty substantial shift in Edwards. And but Edwards is also on the cutting edge of um, basically scientific method, the Enlightenment traditions, um, uh, empiricism. He's he's taking in the natural phenomena, and, and that it, so he's he's channeling those scientific currents and then applying them in extraordinarily vivid theological language, sometimes horrifyingly vivid. Um, uh, oh yeah. Uh, the theological language in there. And so that's what Tim was really, that's what he was gripped by with both of them. Um, I mean, they both became very, very deep mentors through their writings and, and whatnot, in part because they just have so much that you can be able to read. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, he's, Tim is not temperamentally like C.S. Lewis, and he, no. or like, like, like Jonathan Edwards, excuse me. Not at all. And he's not theologically like C.S. Lewis, so it's just fascinating, but that's kind of the example that we might take for granted with Tim Keller, is that he will learn from someone, but not just parrot everything that they think. He, mm-hmm. He'll grab and choose what he thinks is helpful from them. Uh, so an example here would be N.T. Wright, another mm-hmm. another Anglican theologian. Uh, I mean, Tim and N.T. Wright and Tom Wright would not agree at all on justification no. by faith oh, alone no, no, no. and the Reformational tradition. But Tim would, I mean, it's like the res- his book on the resurrection it's can't be cool. surpassed. Yeah. yeah. So that's just the way he is with everybody. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so you also, <clears throat> speaking of, about influences, and um, this is not an odd influence, but I think it's not one that, it's not one that usually gets talked about with with a lot of preachers and, and biographies, but you tank you can't talk about Tim without talking about his wife Kathy. Uh, with so many influential pastors today, you, you kind of you, you tend not to hear about their wives often, which is unfortunate. But Kathy was also being the wife of Tim, but she's also influential on Tim mm-hmm. as well as his ministry partner. So what what's so unique about uh, not just their relationship, but the influence that she has on Tim uh, from the beginning and then throughout his life? I think it's I think it's important to understand that when you're talking about Kathy Keller, Kathy Christie, mm-hmm. here's who you're getting to know. Number one, a woman who at age twelve was and thirteen was corresponding with C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like she was writing something incredibly profound, but like no, but that's that how she understood pal, yeah. herself. Their pen pals with C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis was, uh, she was one of the last people that Lewis ever wrote. Yep. So that you're starting with that. Second thing, you're seeing a woman who, John Guest is uh, still alive today and um, and a, a kind of a legendary Episcopal leader. And he said, Kathy Keller, Kathy Christie at the time, was the most effective youth organizer in Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh <laughs> area. Um, there was a massive... Jesus movement slash reformed revival in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh as connected especially to John Gerstner and Edward Scholar as well as R.C. Sproul. Uh, yep. So so you got that. So that's the second thing. Um, and the third thing is that Kath, most people don't realize Kathy is quoted in Elizabeth Elliot's book, Let Me Be a Woman, mm. uh, as one of the students. So That'd be pretty impressive if you're one of Elizabeth Elliot's students who gets mm-hmm. quoted in one of her books, a student paper. I got to say, as a professor, that doesn't happen very often. No. So, um, no. so that's who you're dealing with in Kathy. 
And so she is undoubtedly a force in her own right. Yeah. And she and Tim's personalities could not be more different from mm. each other in a lot <laughs> of different ways. Um, their dependence on each other before God is it's just unlike anything else that I've seen before. Uh, they have an, um, an exceptionally, uh, just an uncommonly strong union. Yeah. And there's just no way that Tim would have been able to do, I think, half of what he did without Kathy. And I don't think, I, I don't think we'd have time in 10 podcasts this no. long to be able to talk about all the different ways that is seen and unseen. Um, I mean, one of the illustrations people would use in there was that um, friends, their close friends would tell me that Tim would forget to drink water if Kathy didn't remind him. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting metaphor. They're like, you know, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> that's a real thing. <laughs> you just forget to drink water unless Kathy gave it to him. That's right. Yeah. So it's just it did become a good illustration, though, of, of how they they work together. They're um, they're a team and a, and a powerhouse as a team. Yeah. And not and, to say this um, to to kind of throw shade on anything on anybody else but them, but it's it's not. I guess, quote unquote, that they're just husband and wife and she's the ministry help and, and the helper of him, but which is which is true of her, but she's like, she pushes him. She's like an intellectual Absolutely. force beyond him who like not just bucks against him, but like actually improves his intellectual mm -hmm. life because he'll say in a lot of ways, like she's smarter than him, that she's, she's, she's got some stuff that, that he doesn't have. Yeah, they're just they're just they're just a good team. I mean, when, when Tim will compliment her, she'll, she'll push back on mm -hmm. it, but but the the simple fact is that she understands him so well. They've been together for so long. Yep. She was a professional book editor as well during their time in Philadelphia. So right, yeah. Um, it's just I don't think every ministry marriage needs to look like them. No. And I don't think anybody should feel any shame if that's not what their ministry marriage looks like. Um, I've for the hundreds and hundreds of pastors that I've seen, I've never seen. I've never seen ministry couples look the same from each mm -hmm. other. You know, there's just no model that we should be looking to. It's just, a, I'm just, I'm not trying to say this is how it should be or has to be. I'm just saying this is how it is for them. And there's mm -hmm. no way to explain what they have been able to do without that part. And to double down too on the meaning of marriage book, Kathy <laughs> writes a chapter in there. Whether you guys mm -hmm. listen to the audio version or read the book, you're going to hear, obviously, their advice counseling on marriage. So it's coming from stories between the both of them and, and perspectives and advice from both of them, including direct words from Kathy in a chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, all these years in New York, it's not like uh, Tim and Kathy are not shy about their belief in what's commonly known as complementarianism. Yep. Um, it's not exactly super popular in New York. But no. part of what I try to explain in the book is it wasn't super popular in Boston in the 1970s either. No. Uh, so, but they are, they're disciples of Elizabeth Elliot, and so they're just mm -hmm. not real shy about that. So Kathy's been one of the primary voices to explain and to articulate those views about male leadership in the church and, and in the home. And But I also, what I love about them and what they learned from Elizabeth Elliot is that while those... Um, well, those responsibilities are very clear in Scripture. How exactly that looks yep. is not so clear in no. Scripture. And so Kathy is simultaneously 
very clear about the wife's responsibility to submit, and that comes across in the book, and at the mm-hmm. same time is not exactly what anybody would ever think of as a quote-unquote <laughs> submissive wife. <laughs> so, no, not at all. That's the way it, yeah. that's the way it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's speaking more about, about New York and um, his plants in New York and Redeemer, because he's, he's, he's so well-known for that, but uh, he, I think many people don't know. Like he, he had no desire. He wanted everybody else but him to go to New York and plant this church after Hopewell, after his time at Westminster, uh, partially because he didn't he didn't grow up there and he didn't feel equipped. He's like, I don't know the people, I don't know their their thoughts and right. and and how they how they view religion, how they view life. Um, and, but he he had already read and was continuing to read people like Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Philip Reeve, Robert Bella. Um, and so, how how were these authors so helpful for him in coming to this context that he's not from? He doesn't really know the people, the culture. Yeah. So how, like, how does he synthesize this when he comes to New York, where it seems like, oh, you're actually like, you think like us, you talk like us, you're reading these people, you're quoting these people mm-hmm. in a way that most pastors don't do in their yeah. contexts. So oddly enough, Peter, he he really didn't add those folks until much later. So huh. that was okay. the surprise with me. I thought there would be a huge... I thought there would be a long reading list, just knowing Tim. I thought there'd be a long reading list of of sources in New York. And and I mentioned some of them in there. Bonfire of the Vanities would be um, uh, from Tom Wolfe would be one of them that he read. But really, when it came to contextualizing New York, uh, it was just meeting with people. Hmm. I mean, I love the idea that he's he's meeting with so many people at the Tramway Diner. On <laughs> That's the, right. He keeps on them the in business. Side yep. that they, he keeps them in business, and they're you know, Kathy's got to call the call the restaurant, you know, to to <laughs> get to Tim because you don't have you don't have cell phones right at the time. Yeah. So, uh, so I love I love that there, and so really it just was sitting down and talking with people, and it was. Talking with the people, especially from Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew, mm-hmm. um, it was talking with them about what they were seeing on the ground. So there was a, a sense in which he he asks questions, he gets people's thoughts, goes back to his books, studies it, comes back and teaches it. That was really the the primary way that he contextualized, he learned, learned to teach. So it really was not until... Uh, 2005, six, seven, eight. Under the influence of James Davison Hunter, did he start to read mm. uh, some of the different some some of the works of social criticism that we've known him for in the last ten uh, years or so, mm. kind of his 60s more or less. And um, that's a lot of the work that I do with him today, and a lot of what I teach on, what a lot of what I've learned from him and yeah. from others as well. But um, yeah, that's that's a Interesting, it's just, it's much later. And I think Tim would say that he's still learning at this stage and that we need mm-hmm. to be training church leaders to learn how to deploy what these social critics are teaching in a more effective uh, manner. So he got a few years, you know, he retired in 2017 from Redeemer. So he got a few years under his belt, but I was pretty fascinated to see that Taylor mm-hmm. does not emerge in his preaching until the the 2010s. Um, I was a, I was surprised. Now, keep in mind, a secular age, his seminal work doesn't come out till 2008. So that, that's right. Or seven, yeah, seven. Yeah. Right around um, his Keller's first book comes out. Yeah, exactly. Sent around the same time. So there was, I mean, he had been working steadily before that, and um, but yeah, I mean, he really did a crash course on that work mm-hmm. in recent years, and that's just another way to be able to talk about Keller's influence is that so many of us 
have become conversant with those voices, uh, most of whom are Catholic, uh, through through Keller's work. Mm. Yeah. And before before Nick's last question, too, maybe to to dive into this a yeah. little bit more, even though he wasn't reading them prior to that time, it wasn't like he wasn't doing kind of social criticism within the context of his preaching and apologetic yeah. work. Because he's maybe what's like how how is he approaching some of this stuff? Because he's he's quoting plays, he's quoting New York Times yeah. articles and Wall Street, and he's quoting mm-hmm. novels and stuff. And and people in this area are like, oh, you're you're a pastor who reading and listening and doing the stuff that I do myself. So maybe if you can yeah. talk about yeah. kind of that influence that he's had on people as well. Yeah. So the I teach this in my own my own course at uh, Beeson Divinity School, but at the time you just didn't have as much of a sense well let me take a step back so you got the jesus movement and there's a lot of controversy about these young hippies do they have to basically put on a suit and a tie and listen to organ music to be a part of the church and that debate rages and those became the worship wars that lasted for decades Mm -hmm. but the essential question that the church answered or you know they answered no they don't have to become just like the traditional way to be able to fit at some level in a church took a long time to be able to do that but there were a lot of debates then about contextualization then add sort of the, mm-hmm. the gospel, and this was Tim's huge, the huge influence on him here was Richard Loveless, going back to Gordon Conwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there was another, um, well, I mean, that, that then there was the, I mean, I, yeah, I guess the contextualization was the big part of that. Harvey Kahn then comes in at Westminster Seminary, he's one of his yep. colleagues, and Kahn was part of the missionary movement with Leslie Newmigan of coming off the mission field back into the West and bringing the missionary mindset to the United States and the United Kingdom. And that that's the other major influence on Tim, was helping us to see ourselves as missionaries in an increasingly post-Christendom culture. And that um, that's that's what it meant to be able to quote these, to quote these mm. poets. Tim's thought was it's good if I say the Bible says, it's better if I help them see that even your own poets say mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. And that's just Acts 17, Mars oh, Hill yeah. Yeah. kind of stuff Paul, yeah. right there. So that was the basic idea. And so now we take so much of that for granted. But these were huge debates in the 1970s, in the 1980s. And now if you had a pastor who only quoted, well, I mean, she's so out of date now, but like he'd quote Madonna in sermons. And that would just be like, what in the world are you doing? But what I like about it is Tim, Tim kept people on their toes because essentially he would quote the village voice, a very, very liberal publication or the nation. Mm-hmm. And then he turned around and he talked about penal substitutionary atonement. And so people could not peg the church as yep. conservative or as, as fundamentalist or as liberal. And that's exactly what he was trying to do yep. was to, unrest them um or just kind of unsettle them i should say to be able to think what is this kind of place this is not what i expected that's exactly what he was going for Mm. in there so he liked to like keep people on their toes and that's one reason why i teach through david foster wallace in my class because Mm -hmm. so much of what he says about idolatry and everybody worships and oh yeah and the despair i mean of course a man who killed himself that's exactly the kind of stuff Keller was trying to do, was help people see 
that everybody is religious. Everybody is looking for something. Everybody's trying to fill that God-shaped hole, going back to Pascal's views and Augustine's views and ultimately Paul and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, he just loved to find when somebody else was saying what the Bible had already said 2,000 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally, yeah, I, got, I gotcha. That's good stuff. Um, this is a multi-layered question, so feel free to take your time or remind or ask me if you forget part of it. But um, lastly, what do you think makes Tim Keller unique or set him apart from most reformed Presbyterians? And yeah. is there anything that, you know, sticks out about his influences or his approach to ministry that speaks to so many people? I know you kind of yeah. answered part of that. And uh, lastly, what do you think the uh, enduring legacy of Tim Keller will yeah. be? So the so first part of that question, that was an area that Tim and I focused on pretty pretty extensively. And he's borrowed this perspective from the historian George Marsden and his work on Reformed communities. And his basic view is that within Reformed Presbyterianism, and there are three different perspectives, a pietist perspective, a transformationalist mm -hmm. perspective, and a doctrinalist one. Um, it's pretty clear that there, in the transformationalist, it's pretty clear within Reformed Presbyterian circles to find congregations that fit one of those categories. Yep. Often you'll find churches that fit two. Um, Tim was definitely a fusion between the pietist tradition and the transformationalist position, mm -hmm. i.e. the American revival tradition of mm -hmm. piety combined with the neo-Calvinist, Kuyperian slash Bavink, or Bavink um, uh, perspective on, on cultural engagement and transformation. But he also had a respect for the doctrinalist position. And so I think that's what makes him unique, that he, he understands himself in those terms and he respects people who disagree with him or might have different inclinations. So the other young faculty member in his 30s at Westminster Seminary, when Tim was there in the early to mid-1980s, uh, was Sinclair Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And Sinclair Ferguson uh, definitely represents the, uh, especially the doctrinalist position, but also the pietist, uh, piety tradition. And so Tim could definitely get along with people like that. He could learn from, he could collaborate with. Um, he just wasn't a, he's never been a factional type figure. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very much a disciple in this of Ed Clowney. So one of the most significant finds, I think, in my book was going back to the, I think it was the 1969 commencement that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached for at Westminster Seminary, and Ed Clowney was describing the shift in the Presbyte in Westminster from the seminary of the clenched fist to the seminary of the bowed head. Hmm. And that's just something Tim Keller came to embody through ministries like the Gospel Coalition and, and others over the years. And so that's what sets Tim apart, is that he is he's deeply confessional, but he's also deeply pious, and also very evangelistic all at the same time, and that you just don't normally see that combination. By the way, if you want to understand his writing, 
um, the John Frame's uh, triperspectivalism is very helpful mm-hmm. because Tim will touch on the existential. He uses a lot of counseling, CCEF, those kinds of resources, a huge influence. Um, but then he also is big on the normative, just biblical theology, systematic theology, biblical exegesis. Um, but he's also, well, he's the best of the best on the situational, how do you know where this fits in our cultural moment. When you see him doing all three of those things, you understand a lot of the secret of that success hmm. um, and why he's able to reach a lot of different people. And I think that, you know, the legacy will be that, I guess one, one appropriate way to think about his legacy is that people will pick and choose. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they should because I think that one of the a major premise of my book is that the synthesis itself, or at least the process of synthesizing, is, is significant, and so you can't have the Charles Taylor part without the Jack Miller part, mm-hmm. because the Charles Taylor part without the Jack Miller part descends into an intellectual, um, just intellectualism apart from the, you know, the changed heart. So at one level, I think we've got to take Tim and learn from how he kept it all together, but I guess at the same time, it'd be kind of appropriate with the way Tim picked and, choose, and pick, chose that I guess at some level that's what people will do with Tim as well. <laughs> yeah. They'll grab the things that they really like about him yeah. and they'll leave the other parts that they don't resonate with in there. But um, I, I think I think people will still be listening to his sermons and reading his books for a long time. Um, I don't know how long, but I think that'll be the case. And I hope he's around for another 10 more years so we can give us more of both. That's he's a true. great example of someone yeah. that is able to connect the head and the heart. Yeah, that's exactly right. But then also remember, um, he wrote the longest. I didn't. I couldn't verify this, so I couldn't use the superlative. But oh, he, he used. He wrote what many regard to be the longest Doctor of Ministry dissertation in the history of Westminster Theological <laughs> Seminary, and it was about the work of the Presbyterian diaconate in yep. mercy ministry. So it's not just the head and the head and the heart. It's also the hands. Yep. yep. He brought that together, too. That was a major part of of him. So I wrote a book years ago called Blind Spots. In 2015, Tim wrote the foreword for it. It was a very abbreviated, (laughs) uh, kind of like introductory level perspective on exactly what we're discussing right here. And I think you'll find that many of the pastors or other church leaders you look up to most are those who combine the head, the heart, and the hands. And I think it's something we should be striving toward as churches, and as Christians, even if we're especially gifted in one way um, or another, mm. over another. Mm. Awesome. Well, Colin, thank you so much for coming on our show again, for talking about Tim and some of his influences. Uh, yeah, Nicholas pointed out the book right now, which I, I, I have the PDF. I'm still waiting for the for the hard copy to come in. You got to get uh, all the you gotta get the hardcover version with all the pictures. And that's, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is, that looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I really, really wanted people to... I wanted them to see the first issue of Table Talk magazine. Mm. I wanted them mm. to see the uh, the article Hermeneutical Nestorianism. You know, I, I yep. wanted them to be able to see that lineup for 1972 <laughs> yeah. at Ligonier Valley. I wanted them to see his family. Yeah, you know, see his mom, his dad, his brother, yeah. his late brother. We didn't even get to talk about. Yeah, Billy. that's right. Yep. Um, but uh, I just wanted them to be able to picture those places and those times. So I'm really pleased with the work Zondervan did on the book. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure talking about this and his influences, and and both about Keller, but also kind of how he's influenced and um, how that's instructive for us about our influences and how we can synthesize it and do better, um, not just work, but to 
know our context, know the people who have influenced us and, and package that in a way that this current culture can understand. Even if they buck against it, at least they can understand it, which it sounds like that's a lot of what Tim was doing himself. But thanks for coming on. And maybe to just to close out, where can people find you and all that, all that good stuff? And just come on over to the Gospel Coalition or uh, gospelcoalition.org or uh, just find me on, on Twitter. Handle's just Colin Hansen, two L's, E-N. Colin Hansen. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, hopefully in a year and a half, we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I better get to work on another book. I need a rest. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.